0: joining us again for the fourth episode of A Story of Us. We are back to talk about migration. I'm Alex Wilkins.
1: And I'm Mackie O'Hara. This podcast is produced entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Department of Anthropology. So
0: in our last episode, we talked about how archaeologists can use material culture to examine human migration in the past.
1: Yes, and we can learn a lot from material culture. But one of the things that we mentioned, and something that I think came out pretty clearly in the conversation episode between Dr. Cook and Laura Crawford, is that there's a lot more to understanding migration in the past than just material culture. So today, we're going to focus on how anthropologists can analyze human remains to gather evidence and further understand ancient migration.
0: There are several different types of anthropologists that study human remains in the archaeological record, such as archaeologists, bioarchaeologists, and other biological anthropologists.
1: Anthropology is full of subfields, so let's break those titles down. We've talked about archaeologists before, and bioarchaeologists are biological anthropologists that study migration using evidence gained from the human body. Bioarchaeologists study the
0: remains of living things such as animals, humans, and plants in the archaeological record. Biological anthropologists study living humans and our primate relatives, but today we're going to zoom in and focus on one specific set of researchers that study human remains in both the past and the present.
1: In the last episode, we talked about how when people from one population move into a new area, they either replace, displace, or intermix with the existing population. We called this demic diffusion.
0: When populations are not intermingling with other people, patterns in their genes may reflect this isolation. Anthropologists try to take advantage of these patterns in order to answer questions about where different groups have moved to, also whether they've interacted with other groups or if they've stayed isolated.
1: Analyzing genetic patterns is a very specialized field. Genetic anthropologists go through a lot of training in biology, chemistry, and anthropology in order to pick apart these patterns of variation by testing and analyzing DNA.
0: You probably already know that every human has their own unique set of DNA called their genotype. Genetic anthropologists can identify these patterns by comparing the amount and type of genotypic variation within and between groups of people. These are called populations.
1: Genetic patterns appear between populations because as humans moved across the continents over time and over great distances, some groups got too separated from other populations to breed. And when they stopped intermingling and having babies together,
0: certain genes wouldn't get passed back and forth, and these genes became associated with that specific group.
1: This slow separation over time allowed less and less interaction, and it's called isolation by distance.
0: During isolation by distance, other things can occur. When groups are only breeding with each other, mutations can occur in genes and spread across that group, especially if that genetic mutation is advantageous in their new environment. And this can differentiate them from other populations.
1: Those genetic patterns we mentioned earlier refer to the frequency, or the relative amount of a particular type of gene that will be present in a population. In other words, what fraction of people in each population carry the gene in question. After long enough isolation, the frequency of a gene will differ between two populations, and this is called genetic drift. Anthropologists can use these patterns
0: to understand migration in both the past and the present.
1: True, but genetic differences are not the only things bioarchaeologists can use to test whether people have migrated. Anthropologists also use isotopes, which are variation of different types of elements. So
0: taking it back to chemistry class, the center of an atom is made of protons and neutrons. The number of protons specifies what type of element the atom is, and it always stays the same. For example, carbon has six protons.
1: However, there can be a different number of neutrons, and an atom with different numbers of neutrons is a different isotope. So carbon, like Alex says, has six protons and usually six neutrons. And that's the standard form of carbon. But you can also have carbon-13 and carbon-14, which have extra neutrons. As we heard about in the last conversation,
0: carbon isotopes can be used to date organic artifacts like trees and bones because the ratio of one type of carbon isotope will change in relation to another type in a predictable way over time.
1: Radiocarbon dating is extremely helpful, but isotopes in organic materials can give us a lot more than just dates. Human skeletons are organic artifacts in the archaeological record.
0: Yeah, strontium and oxygen isotopes are great for identifying migration in the past. Strontium is an element that is in bedrock, but its concentration and specific isotopic signature varies in different parts of the world.
1: Isotopes can enter the body in several different ways, but the most common way is from consuming water. Groundwater is stored in bedrock, and as water flows through it, it picks up specific strontium isotopes from the area.
0: And then when you drink the local water, those isotopes enter your body and become incorporated into your bones and teeth.
1: The really interesting part is that the enamel in your teeth only picks up the strontium while it's growing during childhood, but bones can continually pick up the isotopes as they remodel throughout your lifetime. So this is really cool because
0: anthropologists can test both the teeth and the bones to see if the isotopes in both of them were the same. But if they're different, it could be an indication that that person moved over the course of his or her
1: lifetime. And the teeth would show where that person grew up during childhood, but the bones would indicate where the individual had been living for the last 5 to 10 years of their adult life.
0: Analysis of these isotopes requires interpretation because strontium levels or other isotopic levels can vary significantly over a short distance, which complicates the picture.
1: So bringing migration into this, strontium isotopes can help us identify specific individuals who moved sometime between childhood and adulthood. But that's on the individual level. And when we're studying migration in the past, we're usually looking for whole groups of people moving. So using DNA and isotope analyses together can be used in anthropological studies of both the past and the present. For example, an anthropologist could be interested in the movements
0: of people into and around the Indian subcontinent. They could test DNA in both archaeological human remains and modern people living in India to see whether the relationship between them is
1: close. DNA and isotopic analysis can be really powerful, but there is a drawback. In order to run these tests, Portions of bones and teeth have to be destroyed and cannot be replaced.
0: It's a pretty small amount, but everything in the archaeological and fossil record is really precious and very limited. So anthropologists try to avoid these destructive analyses, if at all possible.
1: The good thing is that there are lots of ways biological anthropologists can estimate how related individuals and groups of individuals are to each other and how they may have migrated throughout time.
0: Yeah, our genes control how our bodies grow and develop. Genes even control parts of our body that seem very fixed, like the shape of our bones and teeth. Because of this, biological anthropologists can look at the bones that make up the head, or cranium.
1: The cranium is really complex. When you're born, your bones haven't hardened all the way yet. So as you're growing up, all of your bones have to grow up and around to support the existing structures that you're using every day, like your brain, your eyes, and your tongue. So
0: much is going on when you're growing. So imagine this is like a big group project and you've got
1: people working on all different parts, but we still have to communicate with each other like building site managers that ensure that every part of the building is strong and has the right measurements so that when it's finished, the structure is strong and dependable. Building inspectors can look at the final shape of a building and see how the construction workers and managers worked in coordination to build the final structure. Anthropologists can do the same thing by looking at the shape of adult crania
0: to see how each group of genes built their own sections of the cranium and how they integrated the entire skull together. Anthropologists look at metric or measurable traits of the cranium. Basically what they do is measure different distances between various features of the cranium.
1: The neurocranium, or the round part of your head, protects the brain and grows slower than the rest of the cranium.
0: Humans have really, really big heads compared to the rest of our body, so the base of your cranium has to support your brain as it grows. So this part of your body grows to its full size really quickly.
1: And your face is growing at the same time as the neurocranium and the base of the cranium. Your senses of sight, taste, and smell are all housed in this area, plus your upper and lower jaws have to grow in coordination so that they meet and you can chew and eat and speak. The face is really complex and takes a lot of coordination between the genes that control growth and different ones that control development. Going back to genetic
0: drift, the genes that tell the cranium how to grow and exactly what shape it should be can shift a little bit between different populations.
1: Patterns in cranial shape will start to show when all of the different distance measurements are analyzed together, kind of like a puzzle. You understand a little bit more every time a new piece is added, or measured in this case.
0: And these patterns can denote different population groups. It's the same idea as DNA, but using the shape of
1: the cranium that that DNA specifically codes for. These physical features controlled by the genes are called the phenotype, or the physical expression of the genotype. So the shape of the cranium is the phenotype and the specific combination of genes that tells the cranium how to grow are the genotype. Anthropologists can see patterns in the phenotype just
0: like we discussed earlier with the genotype.
1: There are some other factors that can affect what the shape of the cranium ends up being, for example, environmental stresses, but we'll talk about that in our next series. Plus, anthropologists who study the cranium have figured out which parts
0: of the cranium are particularly helpful for figuring out relationships between populations. But these differences sometimes can be really subtle.
1: Exactly. Plenty of research has shown that the cranium can tell us about a population's history just like genes can. But there's always some level of fallibility, and it can't get to cultural differences at all. The shape of the teeth can reflect
0: population histories as well. Dental anthropologists are working to understand how the teeth grow and how genetics plays a part in that process.
1: Some of you may already know that I am a dental anthropologist. There are two ways that dental anthropologists can use teeth to understand population history, metric and non-metric traits. Population affinity just means the estimated
0: likelihood that an individual that you are analyzing belongs to a particular group. Yes,
1: and metric means the same thing as it did with the cranium. It's just a measurement. Anthropologists measure distances between points on the tooth, usually how wide or how tall the tooth is. Non-metric traits are specific features on teeth like fissures, the number of cusps on molars and premolars, where the cusps are on the tooth, and other structures.
0: And these non-metric traits can be marked as either present or absent on each tooth. But a lot of times they're assessed on a scale based on how big or small the trait is. And there are a couple ways to do this, but lots of bioarchaeologists and dental anthropologists can use a variation of one standardized system so that those results can be compared between them.
1: An example of a non-metric trait would be a carabelli's cusp, which is an extra cusp on the first molar on the side that's closest to your tongue on the upper part of your mouth. A carabelli's cusp can look really different on different people. The size and shape can vary, and lots of people don't have them at all. I don't have a carabelli's cusp. I actually don't know if I
0: have a carabelli's cusp or not. Um, but this cusp is associated with particular populations and more than others. It's most highly associated with European groups. Each non metric dental trait is associated with different groups.
1: But dental anthropologists don't just look at Carabelli's cusps. There are dozens of non-metric dental traits like extra cusps, extra grooves, and little fissures that can be analyzed, and it's just up to the anthropologist as to how many and which to look at, depending on their research questions.
0: Different non-metric traits are likely to be associated with each other, and with different ethnic groups as well. If you want to figure out how closely related two groups are that live close to each other, you might need to look at more traits.
1: These patterns can be looked at to estimate whether it is likely that an individual belongs to a particular group. There's always a chance that the tooth you're looking at looks like it's distinct and different from the rest of the group, but it actually belongs to that group due to normal variation, so we have to be careful. Anthropologists can use
0: cranial and dental analyses to answer questions about migration in the past.
1: For example, many researchers researchers have used these techniques to find evidence of how the new world, North and South America, came to be inhabited by humans. What path did they take? When did this happen? Did it all happen at once or in waves? These are the type of questions they've been asking. So today we've talked about how human skeletal remains can
0: help provide archaeologists with evidence of how and where people moved to in the past. In our next conversation episode, you'll hear an evolutionary anthropologist and an archaeologist who studies skeletal remains talk about how they study human movement in the past.
1: Yes, we'll talk to a grad student who has done work using isotopes to examine human mobility in Azerbaijan and Western Asia, and a faculty member who analyzes human cranial variation and the factors that can affect the size and shape of the cranium.
0: We've covered a lot this semester, but there's absolutely no way that we could cover everything to do with migration in such a short amount of time. So if this interests you, if you like this, and you want to know more about migration, there's a few things you can check out. Our collaborators, the American Association of Anthropologists, the AAA, have a year-long theme on migration as well, and you can go to their website for more resources, www.americananthro.org.
1: This is our last content episode for the series, but there's still a conversation episode and two great bonus episodes to come. Alex interviewed Dr. Jeffrey Cohen, who is an economic anthropologist in our department and studies migration. And Maggie
0: interviewed our first visiting speaker, Dr. Noreen von Kremant-Tabedal, from the State University of New York at Buffalo, who's an evolutionary anthropologist. These episodes are really great, and I'm pretty excited to upload them.
1: On a final note, this will be my last content episode as a host. Starting in January, Alex will be joined by a new co-host, Emma Lagan, and they will be talking about childhood and development. I have really enjoyed being a host this semester, and I can't wait to listen to the childhood and development episodes starting in the spring.
0: And this has been really fun for me, too. Um, I had a great semester with you, Mackie, and I'm looking forward to working with Emma as well. Um, but in the meantime, before that, you can subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at a Story of Us OSU, or you can check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu.
1: And leave a review of the show on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show. As always, we hope you join
0: us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department.